Romans chapter 3. I'm going to begin reading in verse 20 and read to the end of the chapter. Romans chapter 3, verse 20. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all that believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be the propitiation for, through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. To declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It is excluded by the law of works, nay, but by the law of faith. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Seeing it is one God which shall justify the circumcision by faith and the uncircumcision through faith. Do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid. Yea, we establish the law. You may be seated. Good morning. It's good to be here again this morning. As you probably know by now, I'm going to be talking about grace. What about grace? And I hope um, this topic doesn't get too complicated, but I also want to maybe not apologize and say grace is hard to understand in many ways. And if we don't desire to study it and understand it, we're missing out on some very important things in the Bible. Um, you saw words already in the verses that were read, like propitiation, redemption, justification. Words that are, for me, are still hard to grapple with and hard to understand. And yet, I think sometimes we, in our Anabaptist, Beachy, Mennonite way, say, that's too big for us, that's for theologians, and we're not theologians, we're just going to live it out. Great idea. But if we don't know what we're living out... It's a little hard to live it out. Um, so this morning, we're going to dig right into grace. And I thought I was going to try to say grace is simple and easy and easy to understand. It should be for all of this, us to understand. But I think that might be taking a little bit of a stretch. Let's dig in a little deeper and let's dig in and try to understand these hard words. Um, I think Paul Washer, I forget who it was, said something about, um, he went to speak in a school, it was at Weavertown School, um, and he, they asked him to speak on propitiation. And so he was kind of a little nervous about this. We were teaching, it was elementary school at that. Um, and he asked the question, what is propitiation? One of the 11-year-old girls stood right up and gave her definition of propitiation. And he said, he's reminded again that, you know, we really should dig into this and understand it. So this morning I want to dive in a little bit on what is grace. Um, it's a quote here by J. Grisham Machen said this, the very center and core of the whole Bible is the doctrine of grace of God. And last, or a few months back, I spoke on um, legalism, 
And I was going to speak on legalism and grace and obviously didn't get through, so I decided to speak on grace this morning. I think back then when we were talking about this whole thing of legalism, I wanted to remind us that we all have a choice to make in our lives this morning and how we choose to believe. You see, we will either believe that we're saved by our good works or by grace of God. There's no middle road. Our faith and our hope will be in one or the other. And I think that's important for us to understand. We can't, as beaches, we're not in the middle of the road. Kind of by works and kind of by grace. No, it is one or the other, and we have to believe that. In fact, every religion in the world, and I mentioned this last time I spoke about legalism, every religion in the world puts their faith in man's works to save them, except for Christianity. So we are different in the way we believe than every religion of the world. There's no middle road. Our faith and our hope will be in the one or the other. Christianity and the gospel. In Christianity, our faith is placed in God's grace and not our good works. Isn't it interesting that people hate Christians? Why? A free grace gospel? I mean, a, a gospel, I shouldn't say, a gospel where you are given a gift and people hate that? You're not supposed to work for it? It's a gift from God and people hate it? Christians are hated. Why? Have you ever thought about that? Why is Christianity hated so much? And I think it's this. Because humans don't like to bow to the idea that they need God to save them for their sins. If someone were to interview a Muslim, an Orthodox Jew, and a true Christian, it might look a little like this. We'd ask each one of them why they believe that someday they're going to heaven. The interview would probably go a little like this. So to the Muslim, he'd say, the reporter would ask him, so why do you believe you're going to go to heaven? And the Muslim would probably say, well, I hold to the Quran, I believe in Allah, I hold to the five pillars of our faith, which is um, fasting, pilgrimage, um, prayer, um, reading, uh, reading uh, I'm missing one, but anyways, and, he, and the reporter would say, well, that makes sense. Um, you seem like you deserve to go to heaven for all your hard work you do, um, and for being a good person. And he'd go to the Orthodox Jew, and he'd say, why do you think that you will someday go to heaven. The Orthodox Jew says, I believe in the Torah, I read the Torah, I follow the Torah, I follow the Old Testament, I follow the Ten Commandments, I do what the Bible tells me to do. And I'm a good man. And the reporter would probably say, yeah, it makes sense. You deserve to go to heaven. Then he'd come to the true Christian. And the secular reporter would say, um, so why do you think you deserve to go to heaven? And the Christian would say, I was born in sin. I broke every law of my God. I deserve judgment and condemnation. I don't deserve to go to heaven. But someday I believe I'm going to heaven. And the reporter would gasp and say, you really think you're going to go to heaven after you broke every law? After you did this? And the Christian would say, she would respond saying, Sir, I really don't deserve heaven. <clears throat> Sir, I really don't deserve heaven, but I'm going based on the virtue, virtue and merits of another, my Savior, Jesus Christ. And I hope we're all there. That's, that's 
unbelievable. That's amazing. That we deserve to go to heaven. We don't. And yet, we're going on the merits of Jesus Christ. Not because of something I did. And the reporter would, that's wrong. You don't deserve it. There's no way you're going to get there. And yet, that's what we believe. My goal with the help of God and his word is to help us better understand grace, our depravity, and our need for God's grace. An understanding of grace shouldn't be something that's just for the intellectual. It should be something for all of us. It should be something taught in our homes. It should be something taught in our churches. It should be something we believe in and understand. We can choose to live by works or by grace, but the Bible is clear there's only one way. For by grace are you saved through faith that not of yourselves is the gift of God. 2 Timothy 1.9 He has saved us and called us to be to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. Everything flows from a heart relationship with God who transforms our heart when we become saved. Only Christianity does the Son of God die in the place of a wretched sinner like me and you and extend grace to his children, taking away the need for us to be saved by our works. Like it says in Romans 5.8, but, com- but God commendeth his love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Isn't that amazing? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So what is grace? What's this grace word that we hear about so often? Hard to define. A definition we, may all, we have often heard and still may be the best definition out there, I believe, for grace is this one. Grace is a free and undeserved favor from God. You've heard that? Free and undeserved. Undeserved favor, that is the key word in this grace thing. You get salvation even though you totally don't deserve it. Justin Holcomb says this, Grace is the opposite of karma, which is all about getting what you deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Does that make sense? Grace is getting what we really don't deserve. Maybe good to think of it in this way. Ask yourself, what's the difference between grace and love? Have you ever thought of that? And I heard this definition. Love is something you get because of who you are. Okay? So you are... John and Kate's child. You deserve to be loved by John and Kate, right? Um, Grace is something you get despite of who you are. Does that make sense? Say that again. Love is something you get because of who you are. Grace is something you get despite who you are. Grace, very simply, is something you really don't deserve. God in his grace sending his son to take care of my sins is absolutely undeserving. This we need to understand and remember if we want to live as repentant, victorious Christians. And I don't think we can talk about grace enough. Because when we talk about grace, as I studied this for this sermon, I was just reminded again of my sins and how undeserving I am. And what does that do? Make me want to go live free and do whatever I want to and not obey what God asked me to do? No, it should do exactly opposite. When we understand that God in his grace has died for us, I don't deserve it, it's not my good works, what does that make us do? What does that cause us to do? It causes us to live for him, obey his word, follow him, want to follow him. Look at, look at how the Bible defines it in Romans 5.15 in the ESV, but the free gift is not like the trespass, 
For if many died through one man's trespass, how much have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ? Grace can be rather hard to define. I like what Philip Yancey says. He says it this way. I don't even try to define grace, which I just tried to do a bit ago. But he says, Jesus talked a lot about grace, but mainly through stories. Stories can be a good way to define grace. Then he goes on to tell his own story. And it's kind of an interesting story to help us understand grace. I remember once getting stuck in a Los Angeles traffic and arriving 58 minutes late at the Hertz rental desk. I walked up to a I walked up in kind of a bad mood, put the keys down, and said, how much do I owe you? The woman said, nothing. You're all clear. I said, well, I'm late. She smiled, yes, but there's a one-hour grace period. So I asked her, oh, really, what is grace? And she said, I don't know. I guess that means that even though you're supposed to pay it, you don't have to. Uh, Let's go start on what grace, definition for grace. Here's another story on grace. Charles Spurgeon and Joseph Parker... Both had churches in London in the 19th century. On one occasion, Parker commented on the poor condition of the children admitted to Spurgeon's orphanage. It was reported to Spurgeon, however, that Parker had criticized the orphanage itself. Spurgeon blasted Parker the next week from the pulpit. The attack was printed in the newspaper and became the talk of the town. People flocked to Parker's church the next Sunday to hear his rebuttal. I understand Dr. Spurgeon's not in his pulpit today, and this is the Sunday they used to take an offering for his orphanage. I suggest we take a love offering here instead. The crowd was delighted. The ushers had emptied the collection plates three times. Later that week, there was a knock at Parker's study. It was Spurgeon. You know, Parker, you have practiced grace on me. You have given me what I... You have not... You have given me not what I deserved. You have given me what I needed. And that's another kind of illustration of grace there. I think the best story of grace, though, is the story of Jesus Christ. Um, Philippians 2, 6 to 8. I think I read this the last time. I'm just going to read that again um, about what Jesus did. Uh, Philippians 2, one of my favorite verses in the Bible. who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself no reputation, took upon him the form of the servant, was made in, his likeness, made in the likeness of man, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. But I want to say this. In order for us to get a good understanding of grace, I think there's two things this morning I want to talk about that we need to understand first of all. And the first is, In order to understand grace, we need to understand sin. And the second is, in order to understand grace, we need to understand who God is. R.C. Sproul says it this way, two things that every human being absolutely must come to understand are the sinfulness of man and the holiness of God. These topics are difficult for people to face, and they go together. If we understand who God is and catch a glimpse of his majesty, purity, holiness, then we're instantly aware of the extent of our evil corruption. When that happens, we fly to grace because we recognize that there's no way that we can ever stand before God apart from grace. So, as we're digging into the hard stuff, I'm going to ask us the question, what is sin? Something not preached of very much in pulpits anymore. 
But I think we need to understand sin to understand grace. If we don't understand our wickedness, our sin, we have no right to talk about grace. Or we won't even understand it, even if we have a right to talk about it. We completely won't understand what grace is. If I would go up to someone and tell them here at church or out on the streets that you're a sinner, they might be a little upset, but it probably wouldn't bother them that much because I think we all agree we're sinners. But if I'd come up to somebody on the streets or even here at church and tell them, you're an evil person, what would you say? Wouldn't like it too much. Might get a little upset. But are we just sinners or are we really evil? I think the truth of the matter is we probably are evil. Sin is a, saying we're sinners is kind of a dumbed-down way of saying we really got a few little problems. We have more than a few little problems. You see, we have lost our true definition of sin. Sin is evil, and we are all evil. We have heard a lot said in society today about God being a God of love, loves the sinner and hates sin. Even that's not completely true. If you read Psalm 55, 5, it says, The foolish shall not stand in the sight. The foolish shall not stand in thy sight. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. It's pretty strong. Thou, thou hate, it doesn't say that he hates sin there. He said he hates workers of iniquity. Now, I also realize the Bible does say, For God so loved the world that um, he has given his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting light. And you say, well, that doesn't make sense. But I think it does make sense that he's both. Okay, Don't take one away. Don't just say God so loved the world and, and that God is okay with the sinner. God hates sin. And in order for him to be God, he can't put up with sin. Because of his holiness and righteousness, he has to do something about sin. Sin's also a big problem in our lives, and a holy God has to do something with that sin. Here in Romans 3.23, it says clearly, and if you're not at that passage, I'm going to just go through Romans 3.23, a couple verses there, a verse that we've read and heard many times, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. God has made us, complete, made us to completely follow Him. He has created us to follow Him. He has created us to do what's right. And we're made to honor and glorify Him. And we all have fell completely short of that. Is that right? We grasp that. We understand that we have fallen completely short of following God's plan for our life. I know I have. He has a plan for me each day. And I often fell from that plan. That's sin. That's evil. That's not following what God has for us. Sometimes I believe we're a little like the rich young ruler in the story of Matthew 19, 16 to 22. It's a great story. And in that story, you have this rich young ruler, a good man, comes to Jesus and says, and I think he came to Jesus for a good reason. He heard this Jesus is a, um, is a, is a man who's here to change the world, and he wanted to meet Jesus, so he comes to Jesus. Um, and I think if you... But look at this rich young ruler, you'd probably find quite a few young men in our church today that would look a lot like this rich young ruler. In fact, be a lot like this rich young ruler. We find out later he's a um, pretty good guy. 
And this rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he says, um, let me just turn to that passage. Maybe you want to turn with me in Matthew 19, 16 to 22. Um, first thing he says, give me a second here. Calls Jesus good. What's Jesus' response? I'm not, let me read that. 16, and behold, one came to him and said, Good master, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? And he said unto them, Why callest, why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is God. But if thou wilt enter into life, keep the commandments. So he said, he didn't say he's not good, but he said, Why are you calling me good? Only God's good. You're not good. He didn't say that, right? He indicated that a little bit. You're not good. And he says, do you keep your commandments? And he said, yeah. And the rich young ruler responds, yeah, I keep the commandments. I, what's he say there? He saith unto them, Jesus said, thou shalt do no murder. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Honor thy father and mother. The young man saith, all these things I have kept from my youth. What, I, what lack I yet? So, was an adulterer. He wasn't um, committing fornication. He was probably not in porn, not in adultery. He wasn't stealing. He wasn't lying. He, didn't, he kept all the Ten Commandments. But he didn't keep them completely. If you read Matthew 5, 6, and 7, right? I'm sure he lusted. I'm sure he didn't kill anybody, but he was angry at somebody before. I'm sure you go through all the Ten Commandments according to Matthew 5, 6, and 7. He couldn't hold them. So what's Jesus say? He don't give him Matthew 5, 6, and 7. He just says, kind of blows you away. He says, give all, your money and put it, give all your money to the poor. And why does he say that? He knows he can't keep that. He knows he's not good. He knows he is a sinful man. Unless he's willing to give everything he has to the poor, he can't say, I'm perfect. He couldn't have said he's perfect anyways, but Jesus just in a real easy way said, give all you have to the poor. And he said, well, I can't do that. I think he would ask us, or ask the good young men in our church, or the good young rich men in our church, the same question. This story is not about riches. This story is about, can we hold all the commandments perfectly without sinning? And I think the answer is no. We need Christ in our lives. Paul Washer says it this way, sin pre presents the greatest problem in our lives. In fact, man has only one problem, and that is sin. Why is sin a problem? Because of God. Sin would not be a problem at all if God was like us or if God was not righteous and holy. But he is righteous, he is holy, so we have a problem. And Paul Washer goes on with a story, an interesting story. He said he was speaking to a group of university students, mostly atheists, not too many Christians, and he opened up his lecture. And he, before he went up to speak, he said, God, what can I say? And he gets up and he says, I'm going to tell you people, he said, if there's anybody, he said, if there's anybody too scared to hear about this, he said, leave right now. And he said, what I have to say today may be the most terrifying truth you've ever heard about God. And he said, if you can't handle it, leave. Of course, nobody left. In fact, he said, this is something you probably may, may have never heard before. You see, the most terrifying truth for the thinking man today is this. And he stopped and said, God is good. And the people started 
what is he saying? That's a terrifying truth. And they started smirking a little bit. And one young man stood up and said, one young man stood up and said, what's the problem with that, Mr. Washer? And Paul Washer responded with this, the problem is you're not good. Get it? God is good. I'm not good. And he has to do something about that. A holy, righteous God cannot handle our sins without a Redeemer. That's a great problem. Sin, our sin, my sin creates a big problem with a holy, just God. Habakkuk 12, uh, 1, 12, and 13 say, Lord, you are from everlasting. My God, my Holy One, will never die. You, Lord, have appointed them to execute judgment. You, my rock, have ordained them to punish. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. A holy God cannot in his righteousness tolerate my sins, your sins. And that brings us to the next important question. Who is God? Very, very important for us to understand who God is if we want to understand grace. We all know and accept that God is righteous. God, because of his righteousness, must judge rightly. Is that right? If he's righteous, he must judge rightly. Because God is good and loves... Here's a hard one. Because God... Because God is a God of love, and because he loves, he must also hate. He said, no, that don't sound right. You may ask, how can a good God hate? Well, ask yourself the question, do you love Jews? If you love Jews, you hate the Holocaust, right? Do you love blacks? If you love blacks, you hate slavery and what it's done to blacks. If you truly love all that is good, all that is pure, all that is righteous, then you have to hate evil and that which is evil. Why do we allow ourselves to hate certain things, but we say God cannot hate those things? Because it doesn't feel right. Because that would mean he hates the sins in our lives. We don't like that thought, do we? We want him to be okay with our sins, especially the little ones, especially the ones that aren't so bad. Can he be? The idea of God being all love and not holy and righteous is not how theologians have taught throughout history. We live in a very dangerous time in church history because we hear so little of God's justice and righteousness and holiness. And if we don't understand God's justice and righteousness and holiness, we cannot understand God's grace because it's not grace anymore. It's just God letting us go, being okay with us. The idea of God being loving and all holy and righteous is something we need to grasp and get a hold of. That is why we have seen the fall of the Western church and also why churches don't understand grace. Without an understanding of God's holiness and our sins, there can't be an understanding of God's grace. When God sees our sins outside of Christ, his anger, his wrath, and his judgment is ready to be poured on us. But mercy intercedes in one hand and his mercy holds back the wrath in the other hand. He is ready to pour out on sinners. And on the other hand, he's got a mercy beckoning the sinner to come. On the other hand, he's got 
holding back the wrath. But someday, someday, that beckoning hand holding back the wrath is going to be gone. That's what the book of Revelation is about. But what do we do with God's righteousness, his holiness, and his hatred for sin and our sins? Like it says in 1 Corinthians 15, but thanks be to God, he gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. His death is our grace. Quoted from 1 Corinthians 15. His death is our grace. Ephesians 2.4, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in trust in our transgressions. It is by grace we are saved. Do we understand that? Does that make sense? It's not our good works. We don't have it on our own. We can't do it by ourselves. A righteous God cannot be okay with my, quote, good works because they're not good enough. But there is something like grace. What about grace? Our only hope Our only justification, our only redemption comes through God's grace. The first thing we need to understand in grace is that, look at verse 24, 324. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We need to understand what justification is. Another big word. And say, that's too big for me to understand. That is what saves us. That is what keeps us alive in Christ when God sees our sins and and, and the wrath of Towards our sin. The word justify is actually a legal word or forensic word term. The moment a person puts his faith in Christ, he is legally makes him right with him. Not that they become a perfect right person, but become right with Christ. That makes sense. The moment we become a Christian, the moment we become a Christian, we put, or we put our faith in Christ, He legally makes us right with Him. Not that we become a perfect right person, but we become right with Him. That's important for us to understand. We don't be, become perfectly right, but we become right with Him. God treats the person as perfectly right with Him. And that's good news for us as Christians. We become a Christian, we are treated in to God as perfectly right with him. Not perfect people, but perfectly right with him. We can't be a little bit right with him. Ever think about that? Are you a little bit right with God? Does that work? I think if we all look at our lives, we would probably say, without Christ, we're a little right with him. We're a little bit okay. Or we can't even say we're a little wrong with him. That's a problem. You see that? If we're a little wrong with Christ, we've got a problem. And I think we all would know we are a little wrong. But because of Jesus Christ, we can be perfectly right with him. That's what justification is about. That doesn't mean we're perfect people, but we're perfectly justified. That is grace. That's what we're looking at this morning. So even when we're disciplined as Christians, we are disciplined not as judged people, but as children of Jesus Christ. Isn't that a neat thought? We are now, as Christians, children of Jesus Christ, and we're disciplined as children now. Where it talks about being adopted as children. So now we're treated as a disciplined child. Does that mean we don't get disciplined because we're part of Christ's 
um, family? No, we still get disciplined, but it's different than being judged by God Almighty um, for our sins, which we are lost if we get judged by God. We have no chance if we get judged by God, but we can be His children and now disciplined by Him versus judged by Him. As a Christian, you have moved into a completely different realm. You were in Adam, now you are in Christ. Grace means to be in Christ and in Christ alone. We are justified and redeemed by Christ alone. Like it says in Romans 8.1, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Second thing we need to understand, in verse 24 there, we said we, justification, what else, what, what's the other big word? Verse 24, redemption. And what's redemption? I'm not going to talk about that much, but redemption is a biblical word that means purchase or a ransom. Historically, redemption was used in a reference to the purchasing of a slave's freedom. We who were slaves of sin were purchased by Jesus Christ and redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Love the song, redeemed, by the, redeemed how I love to proclaim it, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, redeemed through His infinite mercy, his child, and forever I am. I am redeemed. I am redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Redeemed, 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 his child, and forever I am. And the last thing we need to know about in these verses is the harder word, propitiation. What does that mean? There must be a satisfactory payment for sin. But God said, if I punish a man for his sin, man will die and go to hell. On the other hand, if I don't punish man for his sin... My justice will never be satisfied. And what's the solution? Let me just go over the, say that again. If I punish man for his sin, man will die and go to hell. On the other hand, if I don't punish man for his sin, my justice will never be satisfied. And what is the solution? I'm going to ask us that question. Somebody answer. What is the solution to that question? Jesus Christ. And how is he the solution? How is he the solution to that question? We know Jesus Christ is. By his death on the cross. The solution to this problem we know is this. God said that he would become, Jesus would become our substitute. He would take the sin of mankind upon himself in agony and blood and righteous judgment and substitute for our sins. Propitiation refers to the turning away of the wrath of God as a just judgment for our sins by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. Kevin DeYoung says it this way, Propitiation is used in the New Testament to describe the pacifying and appeasing of God's wrath. The idea of propitiation is very unpopular in our own time for at least two reasons. And you will hear that word propitiation, understand what it means, Study it if you don't understand it because it is being broken down in our churches today. People do not want to see the propitiation um, as don't want to see the true doctrine of propitiation. And there's two reasons they hate it. And you'll find this in many churches. It gives the idea of God's wrath that God actually has wrath. And it also not only does he have wrath but his wrath needs to be appeased because of my sins. We don't like that idea. It doesn't sound loving and good, and it does make my sins look bad, that God would be angry about my sins. Despite us not liking the thought, the Bible is clear that God sent his Son as a propitiation for us, a satisfactory payment for God's wrath towards our sin. 
This is the true picture of God's grace. Last question I'd like to ask us now in closing is, how do we live in the light of God's grace now? God's given us so much. And when we think of God's grace and what he did for us, that we completely, undeservingly can go to heaven someday because of what Jesus did for us. When we think of it in that way, how should we live? A spiritual growth doesn't happen overnight. We grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. How do you like that verse? Um, but listen to what the Bible says about grace and how we can grow in it. I'm just going to read these scriptures real quick. There's just a, there's just a, a, a bunch of them. We grow in our Christianity. By the grace of God, I am what I am. We grow in our behavior. We behaved in the world by the grace of God in 2 uh, Corinthians 2. We grow in our holiness. 2 Corinthians 2.9 says, God called us to be holy, a holy calling because of his own purpose and grace. We grow in our strength. Be strengthened by the grace that is in Jesus Christ, 2 Timothy. We grow in the way we speak, Colossians 4. Let your speech always be gracious. We grow in how we serve, 1 Peter 1.10. Serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. We grow in our response to difficulty and suffering, Hebrews 4.16. We get grace to help in time of need. Um, we, in 1 Peter 1.10. You have suffered a little while. The God of grace will himself restore, confirm, and strengthen and establish you. We grow in our hope for uh, beyond death. Grace reigns through the righteous, righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, Romans 5, 21. But in order to grow in grace, we first have to accept it. And you know, that's one of the hardest things for people, humans, to do, is accept the grace of God. And you say, well, why, can I, why would that be hard for me to accept? Because first of all, to accept it, we have to admit we're wrong. We don't like that. And that's why so many people don't like to hear about grace. Um, and we've learned to accept that we need to extend that gift of grace to others. We need to remember grace may be a free gift given to us, but it costs Christ everything. So this week, when somebody does something to us that doesn't deserve our grace, remember what Jesus did for us and extend that grace to them. It's easy to say here on the, over the pulpit, but can I do that? That's what grace is about. Jesus gave us grace beyond anything we deserve. So shouldn't we do that for each other? Absolutely. We also need to understand that obedience will always come if we have accepted God's grace. James says, faith without works is dead. A person who was saved by grace will live with works proving he was saved. Grace deserves the greatest response, and that's a full commitment to Jesus Christ. Love what Paul says in Philippians 3.8. Paul says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. That was a man who understood grace. Gave his whole life because he understood grace to spread the gospel. Paul talked about grace more than any other person in the Bible. He understood grace because of how Christ's grace changed his life. You see, if we understand grace and what Christ did for us, we will always respond in commitment to our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who gave us grace to be saved. And I think the problem so often lies that we forget what Christ did for us, and then we forget to extend grace to others. Let's stand together for prayer.
Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your gift of grace, the undeserved gift that we have if you've given to each one of us who have accepted you. God, help us to be able to extend that to people around us. Help us to love the way you love, to care the way you care, to live the way you live, um, to be, try to be holy the way you're, we're holy, not because of earning our salvation, but because of what you did for us. Thank you for the group here. Just thank you that you have um, taught us about grace. You've given us your word, um, and you have given us your life, and you've given us eternal life because of what you've done on the cross for us. Thank you for Jesus and his powerful um, propitiation in our lives, and that we can be with you someday because of what you have done for us. Just be with us this coming week. Walk with us, guide us, and help us to walk the way you would want us to walk and live the way you would want us to live in light of your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.